Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. May 13th, 2013, hard to believe, almost 10 years ago, the U.S. version of The Office wrapped up its run on television. Uh, People still routinely will talk about that show, uh, binge past episodes. Um, I'm in my early 40s, and so it was the show of my era. Um, Everyone my age still thinks it's on and current and relevant, even though uh, we're approaching the 10-year anniversary. Um, Thankfully, The Office has been back in the news. Have you seen this? Just in the last few weeks, The Office has been in the headlines, thanks to one of the standout actors from that show, Rain Wilson, a.k.a. Dwight. Dwight Schrute, absolutely. Uh, Dwight Schrute, notorious for his lack of social skills, rivalry with Jim, his love of martial arts, Beats, and Angela, also known as the assistant to the regional manager. Here's why Rain Wilson has been in the news, because he posted something to his Instagram feed recently. It went viral. He was on a journey, on an airplane, sitting in first class, and took a selfie. Um, now, I don't often talk about things going viral or selfies uh, in church, but hang with me on this one, because um, he took a picture like this, and you can see Dwight Schrute right there. And then next to him is a man watching an iPad with Dwight Schrute on the iPad. In first class, on a journey, oblivious to his seatmate, watching on an iPad. And being the delightful person that Rain Wilson is, he struck up a conversation. Hey, what are you watching? The office. Oh, I heard that's not very good. Is it the first season? Yeah, ooh, heard that's rough. It's like, yeah, but if you stick with it, the characters get really good. Um, And as this, you know, gentleman talking to Dwight, watching Dwight is having a conversation with Dwight, uh, Dwight took his hat off, and he had been wearing a mask. I don't think out of health precaution, just to kind of be incognito. Um, And the guy, of course, just freaked out. You know, (laughs) I'm talking to Dwight, and that, you know, you can imagine it went viral Um, I will post a picture this afternoon, and uh, you will see a picture of this. But just imagine, this poor guy had an Emmaus moment. Because he was on a journey, and he was with somebody that he was focused on, and he didn't realize he was with that person. He didn't understand until uh, Rain Wilson decided to reveal himself to his traveling companion, In a similar way, we're going to be looking this morning at the road to Emmaus. These folks are on a journey. I don't think it's first class, but they're on a journey. And they're focused on something, and it's right next to them. But they don't recognize him until Jesus chooses to reveal himself. Um, And what I really want to look at this morning, um, and, you know, thank you, Rain Wilson, for giving us an intro today. Um, But what I really want to look at is how did Jesus choose to reveal himself to them, the risen Jesus, 
And how does he reveal himself to us primarily today? Because I think it's the same way. And I think on the road to Emmaus, uh, to spoil the ending, uh, Jesus will reveal himself in scripture and sacrament. The Emmaus pattern. If you think about glasses, those are the two lenses by which we can see who Jesus reveals himself to be. And it's the same thing we see today for uh, how we, uh, by the God's Holy Spirit, uh, how Jesus reveals himself to us and nourishes us and nourishes the relationship that he has with us. So uh, let's look at this fun story this morning uh, in Luke 24. Um, the first thing I would say is Luke 24, 13 to 18, uh, these disciples are on the road, on the road again. If you've got Willie Nelson playing in your head, that's perfectly appropriate. Uh, I actually think the Gospel of Luke could be featured on the Travel Channel. Everywhere you turn around in Luke, they're going places or coming from somewhere or on a journey. It's filled with dusty sandals, tired feet. And the first few chapters of Luke, um, everything seems a little aimless. Where are we going? Where are we wandering? Early in Luke, Jesus is led out into the wilderness. That doesn't seem particularly helpful. And he comes back. You see, and then finally in Luke 9, uh, verse 51, Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from that point, we have from Luke 9, verse 51, to Luke 19, 44, half the book, nearly 10 chapters is taken up by this journey uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, just for contrast, um, the 10-chapter journey in Luke, uh, it's two chapters in Matthew, and it's one chapter in Mark. Luke is on the road, and he takes us with him on these journeys. It's one big road trip. And think about it. That 10-chapter march that they had, uh, the disciples are following Jesus uh, to Jerusalem thinking that they are on a victory parade, that they are going with the Lord, with the Messiah, and they are going in great triumph. When instead, as you read the book, you figure out, man, this is a 10-chapter death march. That's what he set his face to do, to go and fulfill the will of the Father for us and for our salvation. Everything happened that we kind of walked through in Holy Week. Jesus is crucified. There are these rumors that he has been risen from the dead. But these two disciples, man, they're ready to cut their losses. They're like, we followed you all the way. We were in, we were all in. And then after the cross, no thanks. They're going home. They've got a long, disappointing road home. They've had enough. They had fleeting hope, and it was dashed. Um, and if you'll allow me to be a little irreverent, the only time I have experienced something similar happened in college. Every weekend, the last weekend of October, we would go down to Jacksonville, and there would be a football game, Georgia, Florida, and we thought we had a chance. Steve Spurrier was the coach then. <laughs> and every year, <laughs> no matter how high our hopes were, it was always destroyed. And there is nothing like the terrible <laughs> drive 
from Jacksonville, just like soaked with sweat and disappointment and bad choices. And you're driving back. And you're like, oh, why do we even go? Should we have known better? How are we going to sit with this defeat and this disappointment? It's in the middle of that feeling that Luke says in chapter 24, verse 15, uh, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16 says, their eyes were kept from recognizing. Uh, Why don't you think they recognized Jesus? Now, this has been a theme in these post-resurrection appearances that people don't recognize Jesus. But these disciples, the guys who cut their losses, I don't know, maybe grief, maybe a lack of faith. Maybe it's just so unexpected, so impossible. But they didn't recognize him. They're blind to the one standing right in front of them. They're, they're, they're sitting on the plane in first class watching The Office on their iPad next to Dwight Schrute and talking with him, and still not getting it. Because Jesus talks with them. They hear his voice. It it doesn't click. They don't know who he is. Verse 17, uh, it says, uh, after he talked to them, they stood still looking sad. It's an interesting scene. They stood still looking sad as a caption on what's happening. They begin to talk about the things that had happened in Jerusalem. The disappointment, the defeat, the suffering. Uh, Cleopas, God bless him, poor guy. Um, He's like, what? Do you not know what happened? How are you out of the loop? He knows what happened more than anybody. And Cleopas is going, "How, how how don't you know? And they explain what they thought had happened from their point of view uh, to the one who knew exactly what had happened according to plan. And they're just sitting there with sad eyes, standing still, dashed hope. Verse 21, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you hear the, do you hear the, the crashed hopes? We had dared to hope. We had dared to hope again. Mm, we should have known better. Frederick Beekner uh, writes that he thinks in this scene that the eyes of these disciples are almost the most haunting part of the whole haunting story because they remind us so much of our own eyes. How extraordinary to have eyes, eyes that look out on the world we live, eyes that take things in but miss what matters most. How extraordinary. What kept them from recognizing Jesus, according to Frederick Buechner, was, of course, they thought he was dead and gone. But he writes, our eyes are too accustomed to darkness and our faith not strong enough to believe in the reality of light, even when it blazes in front of us. So how do we see Jesus today? How does he reveal himself to us? Again, it's by the work of the Holy Spirit, primarily through the lenses of Scripture and sacrament. These Emmaus glasses, these Easter glasses. Let me talk about these quickly, um, these two lenses. Uh, First, the Scriptures. Jesus tells these disciples 
these disappointed disciples that his death should not have been a surprise because the prophets had spoken all about it. He takes time to deliver uh, the greatest Bible study ever, the greatest teaching ever. It says he walked them through the Old Testament and the prophets showing how everything pointed to him. Now, I just get, I don't know. There's something about this that is amusing and tantalizing. Like, I can't wait until I get to hear this teaching. Like, that's one of the first things I want. Like, tell me that teaching. That perfect, masterful, beautiful teaching. And just imagine, this might be the greatest sermon ever delivered and nobody took notes. <laughs> nobody recorded it. You can't find it on Spotify podcasts. And it wasn't to a packed auditorium or a packed church. It was to two people. Does that, do you see that? Do you see the economy of God and his kingdom that he would take the most precious beauty? Here, it's for you. There's a, there's, a, there's a lavish, beautiful wastefulness almost in this teaching going to these two men. He's showing them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says that these disciples, like everybody else, have been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They thought the story that was happening was the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. The story was the long story of how God would redeem Israel and all the world through suffering, not from suffering. And they had missed that. And that's part of how they've missed Jesus and what it was all about. But Jesus, in his tenderness, says, let me show you. Let me show you how this works. Let me show you how you can see it now that it has happened. And so he takes them through the whole Old Testament. And I love this, because when Luke says that Jesus interpreted to them the things concerning himself, he's not saying one or two verses. <laughs> he's not like these one or two incidents. They, they, no, no, no. The whole thing's about me. And the whole thing gets rethought once you figure out it was about me. And the death he died for us and for our salvation, it changes the entire story when you realize it was pointing towards a fulfillment in him. It's like if you watch the movie uh, The Sixth Sense. You ever seen that movie? Anyone seen The Sixth Sense? All right, I'm going to spoil it for you in a moment. And you've had like 20 years to watch it. So I really don't feel bad. But... Um, let me just describe what happens just briefly. Um, it centers around these two characters, this young boy and then Bruce Willis. You probably know Bruce Willis. Um, and they go through, it's, it's this movie, it's, you know, there's a plot, there's a plot line, it's great. Um, at the very end of the movie, close your ears if you don't want to know this, very end of the movie, you find out Bruce Willis is dead. He's been dead the whole time. And I'll just say, I don't know anyone who has watched The Sixth Sense once and not watched it again. 
because you almost immediately have to go back and watch it. And once you know, once you get the twist, well, then you see it through the whole movie. You see the hints, you see the arrows, you see the little curiosities. I think that's very similar to what's happening here. Jesus is saying, I I get how you might have missed it the first time, but now that you know the twist, now that you know where the story was going, go back and read it again, and you'll see it clearly. You'll see all of the arrows. You'll see everything sinking up. Jesus reveals himself through the scriptures, that the whole story is about him. That's why, friends, at our church, we don't just preach on the scriptures. Like, we just read them a lot, listen to them a lot, because we think that God, by the Holy Spirit, speaks through his word, speaks to us through his word, calls forth faith and repentance and convicts and brings us to obedience through his word, sends us on mission through his word and reveals foremost his son through his word. And so we attend to it on a regular basis in community. It's one of our two main lenses And one of the two main ways Jesus reveals himself to us by the Holy Scripture. But notice, it's not sufficient yet. Now, I'm not saying the Scriptures aren't sufficient. I'm saying notice that the greatest Bible study and teaching ever, they still don't know who Jesus is. It hasn't sunk down deep. hasn't been internalized. It takes a meal. It takes what we would call the sacrament. That that God, the creator, delights to use things he has created, outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. The penny hasn't dropped. They say, hey, can you stay with us? Don't you love that? It says Jesus acted like he was going to keep going. (laughs) They said, will you stay with us? Man, Jesus stops and pauses like he has nothing better to do. And they're the two most important people in the world. Um, I don't know if you ever feel, man, in your prayers, in, in, your, in your issues, in your problems, in our hurts, and our sufferings, that like, man, I don't even know if I want to bother the Lord with this. I don't know if he has time for me. Friends, be encouraged by this passage where the Lord says, to God, yeah, man, I'm going to sit down with you. Like, pretty soon I've got to ascend to the Father and send the Holy Spirit and, you know, make disciples of all nations through you. And there's work to do. But yeah, man, I'll, I'll sit. Um, and luckily, because of who he is, <laughs> he can do that with each of us while still doing everything he's supposed to do. Right? But he sits with them. He takes time. It's time for the evening meal. They sit down at table. It says that Jesus took the bread. And he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And, and it says they, they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. That's when the penny's dropping, in the breaking of the bread. What did they recognize? What did they see that they hadn't seen before? Some say that they think that because this is a visible thing, um, they would have seen his wounds that they hadn't seen before. Certainly they would have seen a pattern they had seen time and time again. Luke is very intentional 
I mean, Luke could have said they had dinner. Fish fry on the way to Emmaus. I don't know. No, what's he say? He's very intentional. It's this phrase that you see over and over in the Gospels. No, he took, blessed, broke, gave. Their eyes were open and they recognized him. We see that all through the Gospels. In Luke chapter 9, the feeding of the 5,000 with bread uh, and with fish, it says that Jesus took, blessed, broke, gave. That's how he does these meals. The Last Supper, Luke 22, verse 17, took, blessed, gave the cup. Verse 19, took, blessed, broke the bread, gave it. That's the pattern. It says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Um, by the way, just to, just to kind of nerd out a little bit, took, blessed, broke, gave. That's how Jesus brings, reveals himself, that's mercy and grace from the Lord. Do you see the symmetry of salvation here? How did we fall? How do we become blinded? How do we seek to have our eyes open in ways that we weren't supposed to? Well, in the garden, it's food. It's a meal. And they take. And there's no blessing, there's curse. And it's not the food that's broken, it's them and us and our world. And they gave it to one another. The symmetry that Jesus would now go, okay, let's use the created stuff. Because God created everything and it was good. And let's take it and bless it, break it and give it for us and for our salvation. He, he redeems every detail of the story over and over again. The communion meal, the sacrament, uh, one scholar, uh, David De Silva, he's got this book, it's, it's brilliant, it's called The Sacramental Life. It's basically how to use the Book of Common Prayer as a devotional manual. And some of the services in the Book of Common Prayer um, as almost study material for formation, sat the sacramental life. He says the sacrament uh, is more than a memorial of Jesus' inauguration of the new covenant. We come not just to remember Jesus, but to encounter Jesus to let him be revealed to us, to let him reveal himself to us. And again, I don't know, uh, one of the things I love about our congregation, our parish family, is we have folks from all kinds of different backgrounds um, and people kind of moving in different directions across the, the continuum. And so, um, you know, if you think about what's happening in this meal, what's happening on uh, this table, uh, the first thing that I would say is, um, this is intended as an instrument of unity, communion. This should bring God's people together as the Lord reveals himself to them. Sadly, it's been a place for division and argument and disunity and broken fellowship. And, and there are certainly nuances to consider and ponder and study as we think about this meal. But friends, I would implore you, let it be, how do we come together? around this table. Uh, you know, our, our Roman Catholic uh, friends, will, they'll talk about the presence of the Lord, and it's, man, it's in the stuff. 
Um, our more Baptist friends will say, no, 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 that, he's not there, but like we, we connect with him. Our Lutheran friends, God bless them, split the middle. They have a thing called consubstantiation. They're like, somehow, like, Jesus is hitching a ride with the sacrament. I, I don't get it all. Um, we would say Jesus is really there. We would say it's mysterious. We sometimes say we meet him at the table, not on the table, but we meet him at this meal. He reveals himself to us through his word and his sacrament. And I came across something um, when I've studied this passage. I, I like the way that, that this scholar kind of thought. It's this guy, Gordon uh, Mikoski. He's at Princeton. Here's what he says. He says, in the very distracted digital age, it may be that the classical debates about the presence of Christ and the supper need to be inverted. Instead of asking, in what way is the Lord present in the supper, maybe the question should be, in what way are we present? Are we present? Are we attentive? Do we seek to discern the Lord in the meal? These disciples, it's not just the scriptures. It's not just the sacrament. It's those together that Jesus reveals himself. And so you see what they say. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Like something's happening. And then it says uh, that when he took the bread and blessed and broke it, their eyes were opened. They recognized it's these two things together. Not in competition, but balanced. Um. I don't know if you are, you know, people notice different things, right? One of the things you might notice if you go into any church is what is the visual arrangement between the pulpit and the table? What does that say about how they think about this pattern of worship? Um, one of my dear Presbyterian pastor friends in town, I went to his church, and you know what they have? They have a big high pulpit. And they have a table on the floor that they serve communion from. And it, it's not irreverent. It's not done out of disrespect. It actually fits kind of their emphases and their patterns. Um, if we were to build a church, and we don't own this, we do own the table. We don't own the pulpit. Um, I would say the idea was that they're on the same level. Because you're trying to show, like, these are together. These are balanced. They're, and they're actually not separate. They are connected. And again, you can look back at church history, and how they arranged the pulpit and the table would tell you a lot about what's happening in the church and controversies in the church at the time. Um, friends, if you go to Charleston, South Carolina, our old historic colonial Anglican churches there, they were still kind of fresh from the Reformation. So they put their pulpits in the sky, you got to climb, climb a ladder. Now, part of that, that's their version of audiovisual amplification. But um, you got to climb the ladder, and then the table's back here. Or some of our Catholic friends, or even our more Anglo-Catholic friends, the table's way back there, and there's something called a rude screen right here. Don't get too close. That table's holy. It's for the clergy. That's what they're saying by that architecture. No. 
the word, the pulpit, the table, the sacrament here, available for God's people. So Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, can reveal himself to them. That's the Emmaus pattern. That's how you get Emmaus glasses to see the Lord. That's why our pattern of worship, what we think is healthy and a full balanced diet for spiritual nourishment is word and sacrament, word and table. I'll close with this from Bishop N.T. Wright. I know it's going to shock our regulars <laughs> that I've learned from the good bishop on this. He really says, Scripture and sacrament, word and meal, are joined tightly together here as elsewhere. Take Scripture away, and the sacrament becomes a piece of magic. Take the sacrament away, And scripture becomes an intellectual or emotional exercise detached from real life. But put them together, you have the center of Christian living as Luke understood it, as we see here on the road to Emmaus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.